Welcome to Passive Real Estate Investing, the show where busy people like you learn how to build substantial passive income while creating wealth for the long term. And now, here's your host, Marco Santarelli. Welcome to Passive Real Estate Investing. I'm your host, Marco Santarelli. And on today's show, we're going to talk about the truth about property insurance. We get a lot of questions from investors about where to get insurance, how much insurance, how high their deductible should be, what's covered. And then there's the always confusing question about replacement cost versus actual cash value, which seems to be debated in perpetuity online in real estate forums. So I wanted to bring my insurance agent on, a guy named Joshua in Missouri, where I'm buying properties right now. And I asked him a bunch of questions about property insurance. What's the proper coverage? How to compare different policies? How much deductible is enough? Et cetera, et cetera. And it's really not as confusing as you what you might think, but it's important to understand what you're looking at and how to compare one policy to another policy. So without further delay, we're going to get him on here in just a moment. But before I do, I wanted to talk about a listener question uh, that came in recently. And the question was, can I put my property in an LLC after I close with conventional financing? Well, the short answer is yes, you can. After you close escrow on your property and you take title, you can do whatever you want with your title. In other words, if you want to take it out of your name and put it into your LLC, for example, a holding LLC, a limited liability company, you're more than welcome to do that. Now, keep in mind that lots of mortgage documents, most mortgage documents, have what's called a due on sale clause. And technically speaking, if you do transfer title out of your name, when you have a mortgage on that property and you put it into another entity, you have technically breached or triggered that due on sale clause. And what that means is that if the lender wanted to, they could accelerate the loan and demand that the loan is due in full and payable immediately. Now, I've never seen that happen. I've heard of it happening, but I think to be quite honest with you, it is extremely rare because at the end of the day, if the lender is getting a payment every month, like clockwork from you, they're not going to care anything about whether you're holding title in your name or in an LLC. They may not like it, but they're not likely going to um, accelerate the loan because it's just too costly and too much of a risk for them to try and do that, knowing that they're going to get monthly payments as opposed to trying collecting the whole amount of that mortgage balance from you. So if you close escrow on a property, you can put it into a trust. You can put it into an LLC. You're free to do what you choose to do with it. Uh, just keep in mind that there is this due on sale clause in the document, but you can hold title in any entity uh, or trust that you choose. And many investors do this. You know, it's not really a prudent thing to hold title to your rental portfolio in your name. It's uh, it's a bit of an exposure. It's like having a target on your back saying, look, I own all these assets. And if you ever get into a lawsuit, it's pretty easy to find out what you own. And then, uh, you know, a sharp attorney can try and go after that stuff. So hopefully I answered your question. And uh, if you have any other questions you want to submit for the show, please do so on our website, PassiveRealEstateInvesting.com. Other than that, let's get to our interview in 30 seconds. Is your cash working hard for you? Savings accounts and most stocks, bonds, and mutual funds provide little to no real rates of return. How would you like your cash to earn a 15% annual rate of return fully secured by real estate? Our private lending program allows investors to safely invest in our real estate projects without any long-term commitments. Self-directed retirement accounts also qualify. For your free information packet, please visit PassiveRealEstateInvesting.com. That's PassiveRealEstateInvesting.com. All right, I'm here with Joshua Dupree. Joshua is with Missouri Farm Bureau Insurance Services, and he happens to be my insurance agent in the state of Missouri. He's been recognized over the last five out of six years as a five-star agent with Kansas City Magazine, which is actually somewhat prestigious. So he really knows his stuff. And we got into a conversation not too long ago about property insurance and how confusing it can be with real estate investors. So I thought it would be uh, perfect to have him on the show to explain real estate uh, insurance and the truth about it. 
One more interesting little tidbit about Joshua. He has a background in film and broadcasting. Uh, I think he was looking for a career here in uh, California, but I don't know if that worked out. Anyway, Joshua, welcome to the show. Nice to, nice to be here. Well, it's great to have you. I've been looking forward to this episode because insurance, I tell investors all the time, is such a commodity. You could literally you know, Google insurance agents and call 50 different agents, get 50 different quotes, they all, uh, you know, they'll all be a little bit different, but I've discovered over time that insurance is not always exactly what you think it is. And you're never comparing apples to apples and it just becomes this confusing mess. So I guess let's start off by talking about where a real estate investor should start when it comes to getting property insurance. Well, I mean, kind of like you were saying with the intro, Insurance is is very confusing. So obviously, you want a uh, professional to kind of help you and guide you. But you know, you also want someone that has some credibility and that you trust. Uh, you know, with my business uh, personally, a lot of my business I do is through word of mouth. You know, I know that if I treat uh, everyone with respect and give them one hundred percent honest answers or opinions, and basically tell them, you know, exactly what this policy that they have or that I'm showing does, then, you know, that's going to uh, basically get those people to have a, that has a great experience with me to whenever they're with friends or family and insurance is brought up, maybe they'll, they'll, they'll throw my name out there. So kind of with going with that is if you, if you know of someone who's in, in real estate investment, that's been there for a while, um, they probably have someone that they that they use a professional that they trust and they they feel has the credibility that 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 person has earned. So you know, I guess that's the answer to the question would be, you know, just try to maybe do some investigating, maybe talk to some people who are also in real estate, and maybe try to find someone you know who can who can service you, who can give you good answers, and explain it in a way where you do understand. Because, like you mentioned before, you know, insurance these investments are huge investments. And you want to make sure you're insuring properly and correctly. So if and when you were to have a claim, you're not going to be upset. You're going to be happy with the end result. So the only way of doing that is, you know, having a policy that you know in and out and that you are familiar with and understand and uh, and obviously be happy with the outcome if, if there is a claim. Okay. So let, let's dive down into that. That's a good segue. There are different types of coverages on standard property insurance. Uh, maybe let's start off by explaining the different types of coverage so investors are clear, you know, at the 30,000 foot level, what they're looking at as far as policies go. Yeah. Um, well, you know, there's thousands of insurance companies out here in, in the States and, you know, they kind of have a different, different terminology or language when it comes to certain things. But there's there, there is kind of a basic knowledge. You know, there's policies out there where it's just fire coverage. And just like it sounds, it, you just are insured for fire. But you also have a fire and extended coverage, but it's kind of a, you know, business, it's kind of company to company basis on what that extended actually means. So this is something that whenever you do see a quote from someone and it shows the coverage and it does say fire or fire extended, you need, you need to say, well, what does that extended also include? But, you know, the standard for the insurance industry is basically a lot of companies use levels where you have level one, level two, level three coverage to add on that is some companies use basic, broad or special. Okay. And basic policy, and I can kind of go into it a little bit is it basically is going to cover you perils at, uh, around the country. You know, you got fire, lightning, windstorm, hail, tornado, uh, explosion, riot, civil commotion, aircraft or vehicle collision, smoke, uh, vandalism, malicious mischief, theft, and uh, breakage of glass. Now, those are, those are covered under your basic policy. However, those can differ between different companies. So it's something, you know, whenever, like I mentioned before, whenever you get that quote and it shows you your dwelling uh, coverage A, which is your structure, and it says what kind of policy is it, whether it be level one, level two, level three, or basic broad special, you kind of have, a, have an idea. Uh, and then the broad goes into a little bit more coverage where you have a falling object, you know, like a tree limb or something like that, or our weight of... Uh, weight of isolate and snow, you know, especially in the areas of the country where you have a lot of snow um, and uh, freezing, accidental discharge, collapse, and, and so on and so forth. But but my main goal 
here is just kind of to give you those general terms so you can tell that agent or whoever you're talking with uh, about the insurance policy. You just be like, okay, well, I see you have me at, at basic or you have me at broad or level three coverage. What really does that include? And any insurance professional should be able to have uh, either bounce that right back to you what the coverages are, or maybe even have like a PDF uh, paper to kind of give you the, the general ideas of what perils are covered. And they can email that to you along with the quote. So you know exactly what's covered because, you know, heaven forbid you have a basic, basic form or level one policy and a tree collapses and falls on your own property and then you don't have that coverage. So it is a little confusing, but it sounds like the key thing here is for the real estate investor to ask the agent questions, what is covered and probably more importantly, what is not covered? Because if you don't ask those questions, I'm not sure that every insurance agent is going to take the time to explain all the things that are covered and go as far as explaining the things that are not covered, unless maybe they're trying to upsell them to a more expensive policy. And Marco, let me, and if you have someone who does not want to go in depth like that, then that's probably a sign that maybe that's not maybe someone you don't want to deal with. You you want to deal with someone, you know, that's going to take the time to explain and let you make sure you understand that policy because you're putting a lot of money, a lot of your, uh, your assets into this property and it could be gone tomorrow. A tornado comes or whatever. And if you're not insured properly, then, you know, it doesn't matter what the premium is that, you know. No, I understand. I mean, it's a common question. What do I insure? How much is it going to cost or what should I pay? What limits are there? I mean, these are questions that I think a lot of real estate investors ask, but many of them don't think to ask. And this stuff that you're covering is not common knowledge. It's not like we shop for insurance on a weekly basis, just like you know we fill our car with gas. It's just something that you do maybe once or twice a year, maybe four times a year, but it's, it's not something you do often. And let me add, and the reason why there are these different kind of coverages is because every house is there's a different situation. So not only does the the investor need to decide on the insurance, but also the insurance company needs to decide on the risk of that property as well. So, you know, say there may be a, an older home that you're purchasing and there's a ton of huge old trees surrounding it. And with the age of the house and seeing the trees and maybe they're not yet they're not kept up very well. Maybe, you know, that company's underwriter sees that and says, you know what, I don't want to insure it uh, under maybe a broad coverage where you have falling objects, you know, until those trees are removed or, you know, trim quite a bit. So there are agents that know what the company wants and know what's going to be improved by the underwriters. So that's why you kind of have these different kind of coverages to, you know, to make, to basically get that house covered for the most perils it could possibly be covered for. Right. Okay, that's great. So let's start peeling back the layers of the onion here. I think the number one question, you know, we get asked here at our company is what is the difference between replacement cost and actual cash value? And before you answer that question, there are a lot of articles and forum posts and investors debating the pros and cons and and the comparison of those two um, all over the internet. And it really becomes confusing. Uh, you've given me a good education um, a while back when I was getting a policy with you and explained the difference, and it was perfect. I wish I recorded that phone conversation, but I didn't. So can you explain replacement cost and actual cash value, and then maybe take that a step further and describe when and where it makes sense to have one over the other? Yeah. Okay. Well, <clears throat> let me start by this. When it comes to a total loss on a property, that means uh, the loss is so severe that the house needs to be rebuilt or, you know, just demolish it and you know, start over. When it comes to a total loss like that, there is no difference between actual cash value and replacement cost. Whatever you insure that property for, that's what you're going to get minus the deductible of whatever particular policy you have. Where it comes into play is, is a partial loss, which most claims or partial loss claims, not total loss claims. So basically every insurance company has a software that whenever they want to insure a property, they will go into the software and basically put in square footage, you know, how many bathrooms it has, how the bathrooms are made up, the kitchen, you know, has a fireplace, um, you know, the flooring. I mean, everything is put into the software and um, basically how the house is made up and it shoots out a replacement cost. 
and it's a it's a good estimate on how much it would cost to rebuild that particular house uh, if there was a total loss and it's going to break down labor materials and equipment uh, so and when it comes to having a replacement cost policy you have to be and this is my company and most companies and other companies may be different so i want to be very clear on this but with my company and most companies I'm familiar with, you have if you want to insure a property at a replacement cost settlement, you have to insure it within 80% of that full replacement cost projection. Okay. Now, some people a lot of times will say, well, that doesn't really make sense. Why is you have to insure it for about 80%? You know, what I, what I say after that is you can't think about market value. You can't think about that at all. You have to differentiate the market to rebuilding a house. Okay. And, Say you bought a house um, for $50,000 and you insured at a replacement cost value, but you don't do replacement cost guide. Say that house has a kitchen fire and it's not a total loss, but it's a partial loss. And say it's cost, going to cost 30000 for that kitchen to be rebuilt. Now we're insuring a house for only 50000 and we have replacement cost settlement on it. And then it's going to cost the insurance company $30,000 to just rebuild that kitchen, which is, you know, what? at most uh, a fourth of that house. So for the insurance company, you know, that doesn't make any, any sense to have that kind of loss uh, with that replacement cost coverage. So that, that is why, you know, when it comes to replacement cost policy, you have to be within a certain percentage of the full replacement cost. Now the actual cash value is a little bit different. Uh, actual cash value means when there's a partial loss, you get a depreciated value for whatever was lost. So let's take that kitchen fire for example. So you have that kitchen fire and say that house, when you purchase that house, the kitchen was updated maybe 20 years ago. So what they will do, they'll appreciate 20 years from whatever's lost, you know, cabinets, the countertops, the appliances, the flooring, and basically give you the cash value to, uh, to repair that. Okay. The interesting thing about actual cash value and something you brought to my attention is that if you're buying a newly refurbished property or a turnkey property that's just been renovated, which is what we sell, you had made the comment that it actually makes more sense to get an actual cash value or what's known as an ACV policy uh, instead of a replacement cost policy because number one, it's going to be cheaper. So your your monthly or annual premium is going to be lower, but it actually ends up being the same amount of coverage because that newly refurbished property is going to have a similar value and it doesn't have the depreciation that an older property would have. Did I explain yeah. that right? Yes. And that's kind of what I, what I guide clients to is, you know, say you buy a house, let's just use 50,000 again. Say you buy a house for $50,000. It's been refurbished, you know, new, new bathrooms, new kitchen, new appliances, new flooring, you know, a lot of the cosmetic updates. And then you do a replacement cost guide on that same house you just bought for 50,000. But let's just say the replacement cost guide is 200,000 to rebuild. Mm -hmm. Right. You don't want to spend that cost to insure it at a replacement cost settlement because you have to insure it within you have to insure within 80% of at least of $200,000. So if you want to save money on premium, you can insure it at actual cash value basis for what you purchase it for. Because uh, whenever there is a partial loss, there won't be much depreciation because, like I said, the actual cash value policy it depreciates the age of whatever was lost. So if you had a lot of upgrades on that house, then there won't be much depreciation if and when there, there is a claim. Right. Okay, so here's another angle on that same question. All properties that investors purchase are made up of two parts. There's the land and there's the improvements that sit on top of that land. And to take a simple example, let's just call it a $100,000 property. The property itself might be $80,000 and the land value might be worth $20,000. And that makes up the $100,000 market value of that property. What should an investor do in that scenario? Should they be insuring the $100,000 or what I believe is they should just be insuring the $80,000 structure that sits on top of the land? Because the land can't burn down. It doesn't go anywhere. It's there. It's always there. Well, this is a question I get all the time. This is what I always ask. I kind of ask a question with the question. If there was uh, a total loss to that house, heaven forbid, what would you do? I'd always, I ask that to that clients. And if I have a client that tells me, uh, you know what, I will rebuild that house. You know, I have, it has sentimental value. 
no matter what happens, I'm going to, or, you know, I love the neighborhood. I love my neighbors. I'm rebuilding the house. Then I, I recommend, okay, well, we should probably insure for hundred percent replacement cost. But most people I talk to, especially the way the market is now, you know, most people are like, I'm just going to take the insurance money and, and, and go. Uh, then in that case, I say, let's go ahead and insure it at the 80% because the likelihood of you having a total loss, especially in a city, uh, an urban area with the, the fire protection class, with the, how good are the fire response is, um, the likelihood of you having a total loss is pretty slim. So you're going to save money, but you also still have that replacement settlement. So whenever you do have a claim, which is a partial loss claim, you're going to get what it costs to replace that. You're not going to get any kind of depreciated value on that. So, and you know, when it comes to real estate investors, you know, 99.9% .9 of the time, you investors aren't going to rebuild that house. You're insuring it for your, what you purchased it for, maybe a little bit more, more than likely, you know, you're just going to take that settlement. You're not going to rebuild that house because in order to rebuild that house, it's probably going to be quite a bit more than what you purchased it for. Because like we talked about earlier, you know, market value and replacement costs are two very separate things. And I know market value with uh, with uh, with this country has, you know, has gone down and kind of kind of been level and kind of slowly getting back up there. But labor material and equipment have kept going up. Yeah. And also people need to also think about, you know, when that house was originally built, it was built by a contractor or a builder who probably built multiple houses in that area. So that makes it a lot cheaper. So obviously, you know, shipping in bulk everything to build those houses. So when you're building one particular house in one area after a total loss, you know, the price is pretty high. on that. Okay. So that's something you just kind of have to think about when it comes to the replacement cost. I think it's also important to note for our listeners that if you're going to have coverage, you want to make sure that if there is a worst case scenario that your coverage covers any debt, in other words, mortgage financing you have on the property because you're still liable for that. So you want to cover the debt or the loans that you have on the property. And then if you need extra coverage on top of that, you know, to recoup any costs that you've come out of pocket, that would be probably the, the minimum that you need coverage for, right? Yes, yes. Exactly. And you, and also, you also want to just, you also want to think about the deductible too. So you buy a house for, you know, a hundred thousand dollars and you got a $5,000 deductible to kind of keep premium down. You know, you want to equip, you want to consider that $5,000 deductible in it. So, you know, maybe you purchase it for a hundred, but maybe we need to insure it for, you know, just a little bit more, uh, you know, to like kind of what you were saying to make sure that, you know, if there is a total loss, you're not taking, you're not taking a financial hit, pay a little more. 20 bucks more a year and sure maybe five, 10,000 more to make sure if there is a total loss, you, you're going to come out ahead. Yeah. You want to be made whole. Now related to that, is it possible to over-insure? I mean, you said you want to have enough coverage so you can get extra coverage, but uh, at what point are you over-insuring your needs? Well, I mean, it, it's, I guess it's kind of a case by case basis on that. Um, if, if you are an investor and you're buying a house, if there is a total loss, which most investors are going to do, they're not going to rebuild that house. And if you feel that, you know, there's been a lot of upgrades to that house where there won't be much of a hit when it comes to actual, when it comes to the actual cash value settlement, um, that's what you want to do. Here's what I was thinking with that question, just to give you some uh, um, context. Some of our clients are buying houses. Um, I'll use the $100,000 example again. They're purchasing an income producing property for $100,000. But the replacement cost to rebuild that property might be one hundred and thirty, hundred and forty thousand, because the cost of bricks and concrete and lumber and, and all the labor that goes into it is more than what they purchased it for. Uh -huh. So they could insure it for the one hundred and thirty to replace it if they wanted to keep it. And I might be answering my own question here, or they can insure it for what they're into it for, which would be you know, potentially the $80,000 loan plus, you know, $5,000 in closing costs and their deductible. So they need coverage for $85,000 to walk away. I guess maybe I'm answering my own question in this way. If that property is a keeper, in other words, it burned completely to the ground and they wanted to keep it and have it rebuilt because it was a cash cow, maybe they do need the $130,000 coverage. But back to your question uh, that you ask investors, if it was to burn down to the ground, what would they do? Well, if the answer is they're going to walk away from the property, then maybe the insurance amount that they need coverage for is the hundred thousand or the eighty-five, ninety thousand. 
or they can even, if they are comfortable or uncomfortable with the actual cash value thing, I mean, if they did buy it, you know, for a hundred thousand and the replacement was maybe one thirty, then, you know, 80% of that, you know, you're looking at about $104,000. So that's not really much away from what you purchased it for. So it, it might actually make sense in that, in that case, you know, if the replacement cost is not much more than what you purchased it for, you know, fitting into that 80% equation that I'm using, that most companies do use, but not everyone. So that's something you need to, to your insurance professional with, but you know, 80% of 130 is $104,000. So, yep. you know, if it was me, if I bought the house for 100,000 100, and it only takes me 104 or 80,000 and I'm like 85 into it and it's only going to cost 104,000, I have to insure it for 104,000 to get that replacement cost settlement. I may, I may shoot for the replacement cost, just looking at the difference in the premium. And that's something that your professional can show you. You can show you the quote for, you know, if we just do the actual cash value, this is the premium. And it might be, you know, only $40, $50 more a year to insure it at the 104 or replacement costs. So if there was a partial loss, then, you know, instead of getting that depreciated value for whatever's lost, you're going to get what it costs to replace. So, you know, my, my thing is... Uh, a lot of times I see, you know, houses with the way the market is, they're great buys out there. I mean, this is definitely a buyer's market. But whenever you think about rebuilding that house, it's sometimes double, even sometimes triple what the purchase price is. So when you get into something like that, then it's not probably going to make sense to do that replacement cost. And not only that is some companies probably won't even allow that. You know, if you buy a property for $100,000 and it costs 300000 to replace it and you want to insure it for 300000 that means the insurance company is on the hook for 300000 when you only purchase it for 100000 Now, you know, it just depends on the, the company, but, you know, some companies like my company, that's something the underwriters probably wouldn't allow because that's a huge gap from the purchase price to what we're insuring it for. Because, you know, we insure it for 300000 there's a total loss, you know, we're paying out 300000 People need to also understand, you know, insurance is, is a business and you want it to have a good insurance company that writes good business because that means that they don't have as many claims or when they do have claims, they're not paying out as much because if a company's paying a lot of claims and playing a ton of claims because of agents not knowing what they're doing or not doing their job, then that means uh, premiums go up and you have rate increases. You know what I mean? So there's all, all kinds of different scenarios when it comes to replacement costs being pretty close to what you're purchasing it for, then, you know, you may need to lean towards that replacement cost because to be honest, it probably won't cost you that much. more. Sure. And, and just to keep things in perspective here, because the listeners are listening to all these worst case scenarios, you know, everything burning to the ground. The statistic I heard is that 99% of the claims that are made with property insurance are partial losses. They're not complete, you know, burn to the ground scenarios. And to be and, and I did and I read an article. This was a few years back, um, you know. And this is talking about urban areas, uh, you know, the city uh, where you have good fire response. But they basically say you have a better chance of being struck by lightning than having a total loss in an urban area when it comes to fire on your house. So I mean, that kind of helps put that in perspective too. So yep. coming back from this, uh, when I mentioned earlier, you know, there's no difference when there's a total loss. There's no difference on actual cash value to replacement cost value. It only comes into play when there's a partial loss, which majority of claims, like we just talked about, are partial losses. So that's why this it's good to understand and have kind of a good grasp on this actual cash value versus replacement cost value. Yeah. So the number two question I think that investors ask themselves is what should my deductible be? And I've seen $1,000. I've seen $2,500. I've seen $5,000 deductible amounts on policies. I, I know it's really uh, maybe a subjective question because it's what the comfort level is of the investor. So there's no magic you know, formula or right answer for everybody. But what are your thoughts on that? Well, and like you said, it, it's totally subjective. I mean, I got hundreds of clients and you know, some of them have the higher deductibles because they have a, a, quite a bit of properties and they're just in, they're just insuring that investment. But I have other you know clients who just maybe have one or two properties and you know they just want to they want to have a lower deductible so so they're not hit that much if they do have a claim. 
Um, it's just basically something that you need to talk with your insurance professional with. You know, there should be no reason why that professional can't send you a few quotes with multiple deductibles. And I see, you know, a thousand dollars is kind of a, a basis these days. Um, a lot of companies are even going to percentage deductibles. So whether it be like one or two percent deductibles, which I really don't like, uh, it depends on, on the investor. It depends on how many properties they have. Depends on, you know, what are they, what are they comfortable with, you know, out of pocket? Because, you know, that's another thing you need to understand. Whenever there's an insurance claim, you are not supposed to be ahead or you're not supposed to be under financially. You know, you're supposed to be where you were at financially before the claim even happened. That's, that's proper insurance. So, you know, if you have, if you feel comfortable with the higher deductible, 5,000, because I'm not going to make little claims or 7,500. And that's fine. But, you know, if you have a couple properties and you don't have how much money to, to throw at a deductible, then, you know, you need to stick with, you know, a thousand or maybe 1500 or, you know, 2500. There's, there's, there's so many different variables. It's just, but also you want to also think about, you don't want to be that person that has a bunch of claims that are small because that's also going to affect your premium. And in the long run, you could possibly pay more money than you're, than you are getting from your claim. So you don't you don't want to be that person that, that has small like a five hundred dollar six hundred dollar claim or you know what I mean. In my opinion, my professional opinion is you know you want to have a deductible that you're comfortable with that's a little high that's going to keep you from having those little claims because those can come back and and cost you even more money uh, in the long run. Is that similar to the concept of self insuring where you still have an insurance policy but you have a higher deductible because you're going to cover anything and everything? up to a certain dollar amount, whether it's 5,000 or more. Is that the same thing? Yeah, it's, it's, it's the same thing. And I mean, cause it kind of goes, the principle kind of goes along with that. You're self-insuring up to 5,000, say the house is in between a lease and someone comes in and vandalizes it and rips up the carpet, you know? So if you're comfortable with something like that and, oh, I can throw a new carpet on this, this house for, you know, three grand and it's not, uh, and, and that's something that I feel comfortable with doing. So I'm going to up my deductible. Uh, you know, maybe to 5,000 because, you know, obviously the higher deductible, the, the more you're going to save on that premium. So, I mean, it's just something that you have to kind of talk with your insurance professional with and kind of figure out, you know, what will work best for you. You know, you don't have to keep that deductible. You know, say one year you're just starting out in the business and, you know, you don't have much capital to work with. So, you know what, you're just going to say, you know, I'm going to keep a kind of a lower deductible. Maybe we'll do a thousand deductible. And then maybe next year you'd have a couple more houses under your belt. You're, 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 you have some good investments. You're, you're doing well with those and you got a little bit more capital to work with. And you can just call your guy and you say, you know what? I got these houses with you. Let's up this to $2,500 this year. Mm -hmm. You know, so this is, this is something that you can, you can kind of adjust as, as you go along um, in this uh, venture. Yeah. I, I heard a general rule of thumb. Um, if, as far as setting your deductible amount and what you're willing to self-insure. And it's basically mm -hmm. this, take that number that you're comfortable with spending. If there is something that needs to be paid for that you don't want to file a claim for, uh, let's call it $2,500. If you're comfortable with the $2,500, double that number, which will be 5,000. And that would be your deductible amount. Have you heard that before? Actually, no, I haven't, okay. but I, I think that's a pretty good rule. Okay. Well, there you go. You learned something today. <laughs> um, okay. So next question, protection class. I am not familiar with that concept. Uh, what is it and how does it affect the insurance rate? Yeah, I think I'm, I've mentioned that a couple of times. Well, the protection class is just basically the, the grade that the fire response has. So it basically equates, you know, how, how many miles a fire station is from your house and also the quality of the fire uh, departments in that area. And that's called a fire protection class. So that's a good factor in the insurance business. Uh, so obviously if you have a house and it's 10 miles away from the nearest fire station, then you're going to have a higher protection class, which is going to reflect a higher premium. But, you know, talking to you, you know, dealing with investors here, um, you know, most investors are buying properties in urban areas, in working class areas. So, you know, there's going to be, it's going to be a, a good protection class in those areas. You know, there's going to be a fire response, all fire stations in Kansas City and the Kansas City metro area. Uh, every house, residential house in this area, almost every house is within five miles from a fire department. Yep. So we're going to have a good protection class. But, you know, this is for 
investors, if you're looking at more rural communities, you know, you're saying, you know, this is, doesn't equate because I have a, I'm insuring a house, you know, in, in Kansas City for 80000 And this, you know, this is the premium. Let's say it's, you know, $600 a year. And I'm insuring a house in rural Missouri for the same amount, but it's $1,200. Well, the reason for that is a big factor of that is the protection class. Maybe that fire department's, you know, seven miles away not three miles away or one mile away as it was in the city. So, so that's, that is a good factor uh, and something good to know about this and about the insurance on your, on your investments and uh, kind of helps you maybe stick with uh, urban areas, the working class urban areas uh, to get you a, a good rate. Yeah. That makes me think of some markets like Detroit, just to pick on one city that, you know, was officially bankrupt. Uh, mm-hmm. I would imagine that insurance premiums for properties within the city, or at least within many parts of that city, are very high because there are many communities within the city of Detroit that doesn't have police or fire response. If you have an issue, you're on your own. You're not going to see anybody for a half hour, an hour, or, or not at all. The protection class must be through the roof there. Yeah, and you know the rating you get is uh, one through ten. Is the rating you get, and I mean, just to give you an idea. You know, in Kansas City. Protection class. There's some areas where it's a two, and some areas where it's a three, which is which is great. So you you know you get the you get a, a you have a good protection class in this area. Now other cities, you know, I'm not sure, especially Detroit. I mean, it, what you were telling me, I'm sure they have shut down uh, some of the public facilities like fire stations and police stations. So yeah, that's probably going to be a big factor in, in premiums in, in cities like in city like Detroit or other cities like that. Yep. Well, those are the core things. There's two other items that I have on my policies that we should touch on, and that's liability insurance and rental loss coverage. Uh, So what about liability insurance? I mean, you know, the stories are someone trips and falls on your property and all of a sudden you get a letter from their attorney saying that you're liable for their injury. Yeah. Well, and I'm going to be pretty vague on on personal liability because there is a lot of gray. I got a wife who's in law school too. So, I mean, I'm, I'm learning a little more and more here, but basically you know, you want to make sure you have a good amount of personal liability on these on these properties that you own because you obviously you want to cover your assets. And it is for if there's an accident on that property, on that lot, and the accident, uh, whoever is involved felt that it was due to your negligence, then, yeah, they, they can sue you, whether it be, you know, falling on some stairs or, or whatnot. But what I will add to that is something that you also need to talk about with your property management company, if you have one, is ask them if they have some kind of a blanket policy, too, because there needs to be something worked out between you as the as the owner and the property management company, because they may have a blanket policy, too, because obviously, especially if you're buying a uh, property that's out of state, you can't be there. You know, you don't have the tenant calling you up when there's an issue. So you need to have a good understanding and knowledge about the property management maybe they even might have a blanket policy. So, you know, say a, a handrail's loose and they notify them, and they need to come out and, and fix that because, you know, that handrail that's loose could come off when playing devil's advocate here. Maybe they have an, their elderly mother or grandmother over and she's putting a lot of that weight on that on that handrail and the handrail breaks, gives, and she falls and she she's breaks a hip. You know, that's, that's a pretty bad case scenario, but I mean, it happens. So need to have enough basically personal liability coverage to basically cover cover the assets and then talk with your property management company as well see if they have something that covers you too because you know in a case like that they possibly are, are liable but I'm not saying you're not liable too but um, it's something good to know uh, because it's their responsibility to maintain and upkeep that property where it's livable and to protect the client the tenant and also the landlord the investor as well yep yeah, very good point. And plus, you could always get an umbrella policy on top of that to backstop anything your liability insurance doesn't cover with you know a company like yours. So yeah. it's pretty easy and, and pretty cheap to cover yourself from a liability perspective. Yeah, and to, and to up liability on your individual policies is really not that much. Uh, and with my company, we have a kind of a strict policy when it comes to our umbrellas. We're very strict when it comes to underwriting and, and our policies and stuff. And like I mentioned earlier, that's that's a good thing because we we are a good company and we wanna we wanna write good business and that helps keeps premiums and rating and having us not having rate increases. 
but uh, there are companies out there that you can get an umbrella policy because with us, we have to actually insure the property for us to do the umbrella. But there are companies out there that will do a blanket umbrella policy uh, that are, the cost is pretty minimal, especially when it's covering your assets, you know, what you've worked your whole life to build. Yep. Um, that, you know, it doesn't matter where you're insuring the individual properties with, you can throw all those, all those locations on that umbrella and give you that proper coverage to, to protect your lifelong assets. Then. Sure. And briefly cover the rent loss coverage because some investors think that that covers, you know, a tenant turnover or a vacancy, but that's really not what it's for. The only time that loss of rent will come into play is when there is uh, a claim that is covered on that property. So, you know, say you have a level three special form coverage and the, you know, I used the, the kitchen fire, but let's just, let's just do tornado. Let's say a tornado comes and maybe takes out maybe the south side of a house. Obviously, the house is open, it's not livable. So you have a claim on that structure, obviously, to get that repaired, but that's when your your extra expense or loss of use or loss of rent comes into play. So, because obviously if it's not livable, you can't have a tenant there, you're not collecting that rent. So the company will not only give you the coverage to fix the structure, but it'll also give you the coverage that you're losing on the on the, on the the on the rent. Um, and that's, that's when it comes into play. There may be some companies out there that have endorsements where, you know, if someone up, you know, breaks the lease or something, maybe there's some coverage. I, I don't know. We don't have anything like that. And I don't know if there's anything out there, but there possibly could be. I mean, it's just a matter of, you know, asking the insurance professional to get more information because, you know, you buy, you're buying these investment properties for the sole purpose of that rental income. So you obviously want to make sure something happens to that house and it's not livable. You get used to maintain that rent while that house is being repaired. Right. Okay. So, in tying all this together, what can real estate investors do or what steps can they take to help reduce their insurance premiums without putting themselves in a position where they're going to be underinsured? There's a lot, lot to that. Um, just knowledge. I mean, and having documentation. Um, a lot of insurance companies, mine included, we have discounts that you can qualify for. When it comes to renovations, however, you know most companies, mine included, want some kind of proof that those renovations were done. In the insurance world, it's it, you know when it comes to plumbing, electrical, you know the insulation, obviously of a house, H, HVAC, uh, the roof, those are huge components uh, when it comes to insuring a property. And if you're buying a property and all those have been totally replaced, it would be nice whenever you purchase that when you tell the seller, you know, I want doc or some kind of invoice shown that this was done by a licensed professional because having having all those all that documents and being able to funnel that to an agent you know is only going to help a lot of insurance companies but not every every insurance company they use uh, a big factor in the rating of a house is the age of a house if you think about it you know houses the turn of the century weren't insulated they had the knob and tube wiring the plumbing was clay you know so there's been a lot of upgrades uh, to the house uh, when it comes to those things, I don't want to get into structure because structurally those houses on the turn of the century were built a lot better. But, you know, those components that build up a house, those are those are factors um, that could cause, you know, major claims down the road. So that's something if you can get documentation. When you're buying a house if it's been you know, totally renovated. You know, a lot of these have cosmetic updates, which are great, too, which is only help. But to get those discounts like full renovation discounts on those older homes. A lot of times those companies, those underwriters of those insurance companies will require something like that. So having having that is only going to help you out. Is a scope of work from the contractor sufficient or does it need to be actual receipts? Because I think a lot of contractors or at least general contractors won't release that information. Well, I mean, I guess it's just kind of a case by case because uh, I, I, I work for one specific company. I mean, I brokerage out uh, through other companies. Uh, so I kind of have a feel for their underwriting as well. You know, some companies, it's just, you know, if you write on an application, you know, that the electrical was done, you know, and that that's going to suffice. However, you know, some companies, they want to make sure that it was fully replaced. You know, kind of kind of where I'm, I'm getting at is we have a lot of beautiful homes here in Kansas City, uh, the historic homes. Some homes are like $500,000, $700,000 homes or huge houses. You know, these are owner-occupied homes I'm talking about. Most of them, these homes really aren't rentals, but 
during the you know inspection of the house, you know they'll they can still find knob and tube wiring in those those houses. So when it comes to you know the smaller houses, the houses that are more prone to you know investment purposes, you could go in there and it looks like it's been totally upgraded, but there could be still some knob and tube in there, or still be some clay plumbing throughout that house, you know where it, it affects the risk. But you know that comes into play. Um, mm-hmm. The only thing I could say if you can't get that document is just it me being a, and being who I am because I, I know how I do my business. Uh, when I go, I like to inspect all my properties. And when it comes to a property that has been totally renovated and they can't they can't get the documentation, that's one of those where I will go to the house and I will take a ton of photos to, you know, under the sinks, you know, in the basement to show, you know, the PEX plumbing or the copper plumbing, hit the electrical box, show the wiring, you know, just take a ton of pictures to to show. And, you know, it does sometimes and I can't get all those forms, I can still with the relationship I have with my underwriters and, you know, knowing me as a uh, insurance professional, they can see those photos, listen to what I'm saying and still give those renovation discounts. So, you know, having those, if you just basically saying just get as much information on that house, much documentation, you know, inspection reports, maybe before uh, renovation, maybe after renovation, if if that seller has it, uh, that that can only help. Um, you know, and, and another thing I, I like I'll bring up too is the structure of the house. You know, if you're if you're looking at a house and it's a brick house, uh, that's a plus because a brick house over a wood frame house obviously is not going to have the the risk of the fire like uh, like the wood frame house. So you you get a little deduction uh, for having a brick house, whether it be a solid brick house. You know, if it was built before the 1940s, most of those are solid brick houses. But, you know, you also do, you know, after that, you, we have the brick veneer houses. You still get a deduction on that. So mm-hmm. uh, so I, I, I tell investors that, especially a lot of them are still in the market wanting to buy more properties. I say, hey, you know, if you find a property that's, you know, less than six years old and it's a brick house, you might want to jump on that because uh, if it's a good investment, obviously for you, but uh, come with the insurance in mind, that's that's going to save you some premium as well. Mm-hmm. That's all great advice. Before we wrap up, Joshua, uh, anything else you want to share with our listeners? I would just basically um, make sure you have an insurance professional that whenever you ask questions will give you the answers. And if they don't have the answers, actually tell you that they don't 100% know and then but they will find out before they give you some answer that's maybe not correct. And the only reason why I'm saying this cuz this actually just happened not long ago. I have a new client and he was very upset. He purchased um, multiple properties and was told by the, his previous agent that if we throw all these properties on one policy, you'll just be subject to one deductible if there is a loss on multiple on, on multiple structures uh, in, within this policy. And um, that ended up not being true because uh, he bought a bunch of houses that were all together uh, in basically on one block and a big significant hailstorm came and he uh, come claim time, he thought he had the one deductible because he, he, he had a higher deductible. He did a higher deductible because he was, he was thinking as all the properties in one policy, one deductible, but they ended up not being true, even though the agent told him that. So instead of having one $5,000 deductible for all, you know, I think it was seven houses, end up having a $5,000 deductible per house. So th- that's what they refer to as a per location occurrence as opposed to a per incident occurrence. Yes. And I and I hear that a lot. A lot of a lot of people tell me, "Oh, I have this policy that has all my houses on it. It's just one deductible." Make sure that is accurate. You know, just basically, you know, you just want to make sure you, yeah. you understand what the guy, what the person's saying. You feel that he's credible and uh, and not just being a yes man. If you have something not right or he's not getting back with you or not really answer, not really answering your question, then you know, it may be time to maybe maybe call someone else and get their opinion or get a quote from them. And that's basically all I'm saying. You know, people have a lot going on in their lives. Mm-hmm. These are very important, and you need to make sure you're insuring them properly and that you know the coverage. So yeah, yeah, great advice. Well, this has been great. Lots of good, helpful information, and I know the listeners are going to appreciate this information. So tell our listeners how they can get a hold of you. Where can they find you if they want to contact you for uh, insurance or quotes or whatever else? Well, like you said earlier, I work for uh, Missouri Farm Bureau Insurance. Uh, 
um, in the Kansas City metro area, my office is actually in Independence. It's a suburb of Kansas City. I have an office line. It's 816-833-4440. I got a handful of secretaries. You just just basically just mention my name and they can forward any information uh, to, to me or transfer you to me if I'm available. I do have an email address. Uh, I work right through email. It's uh, just my name. It's it's J, first initial of my name, uh, my first name, J Dupree. D-U-P-R-E-E at M-O, as in Missouri, F-B.com, Farm Bureau. So jdupree at M-O-F-B.com. And I do have a website. I mean, you could just, probably the simplest thing is just maybe Google me, Joshua Dupree and Missouri Farm Bureau Insurance, and that will pop right up and uh, give you a link and you can access my email or it'll show you my office number and also my cell. You can give me a call. Yep. And I'll put that in the show notes too. Okay. Perfect. Well, Joshua, I appreciate your time today. The information's been great and uh, I want to thank you. No problem. I can talk about insurance anytime. Sounds good. All right, Joshua. We'll talk to you soon. All right. Bye-bye. Well, I hope insurance is not the mystery it was about 40 minutes ago. There was a lot of good and useful information on today's show. So hopefully you can take that information and apply it to your own real estate investing and be able to have the coverage you need at the lowest possible premium. Download our free report if you haven't done so. The Ultimate Guide to Passive Real Estate Investing at our website, PassiveRealEstateInvesting.com. Remember to subscribe if you're a first-time listener. And once again, to tell you about our ethical bribe, we have these really cool new coffee mugs. They are what I just refer to as Keep Calm and Invest On. There is an image of those mugs on our real estate website at NoradaRealEstate.com. And all you have to do is leave us a rating and review on iTunes, and then just shoot an email over to reviews at noradarealestate.com, and I will drop one of those mugs in the mail for you. So I appreciate the ratings and reviews. The feedback has been fantastic, and so thank you for that. And once again, thanks for listening. We love having you here, and we will see you on the next episode. Nothing on this show should be considered specific personal or professional advice. Please consult an appropriate legal, tax, real estate, or business professional for individualized advice. For distribution or publication rights and media interviews, please contact the host.